Um, before we go to God's Word, I'd like to just uh, spend a few moments uh, talking about our process as we uh, pursue to call men who we believe God has shaped for shepherding. I might not use that, but thank you, brother, for... And by the way, I, I, I was blessed by Lot Ming for resurrecting one of the most powerful hymns, the sweet, and originally when Isaac Watt wrote it, the sweet and awful presence. Uh, that is one of my favorite hymns of all time, so thank you for doing that. Let me just share uh, briefly uh, what we're talking about in terms of process, in terms of looking for elders. I know how elders... Typically are chosen in churches or in a traditional Baptist church, how deacons are typically chosen. But in our process now, and this sometimes happens, right, new pastor, new ideas. I don't think these are new ideas. I I believe they're just right out of God's word. As we began to look at men, we look for men who we believe God has shaped with a shepherding gift, not a leadership gift. Because we see that when God looked for a king, he looked for a man who had the resume of a shepherd. And that's what we're looking for in men. Uh, We're also at the same time trying to uh, transition to a process that is the same. For instance, you may not know this, uh, but I'm on probation right now. It's just the year of the chicken. Finally, my year. Unfortunately, I heard last week it's the fire chicken. So I'm praying no chickens will be fired this year in, in this time of probation. Uh, what we want to do is because right now in our Constitution and bylaws, it says that any pastor who comes to us who does not have pastoral experience, we want them to serve with us a year before we officially uh, bring them into eldership. We're, we are saying the same thing about laymen who have the gift of shepherding. We see it, it's obvious, but we're also asking that before we bring them to you, we allow them to serve with us for a year. After that year, we're going to meet with them and say, is this something that you sense in alignment with your spirit and calling that God has called you to this act of shepherding, which, by the way, is the pastoral gifting. However, Uh, This morning, we want to present two uh, men that unanimously we agree as elders fit the biblical qualifications and just simply have hearts shaped for shepherding. Uh, The first of these is uh, Lim Song Huat. Now, is that uh, not very clear? This is Song Huat. He's standing here with his four girls. Um, now, I don't know if all of you are familiar with Song Huat. He has been uh, living in Australia for some time. Many of you may not know he actually has his Master's of Divinity from Trinity Theological College in Perth, where I believe uh, half the population is actually Singaporean. Um, he has returned and feels a, a great desire to serve God, not just in Singapore, but in and through GBC. And so we are recommending unanimously that you prayerfully consider affirming this brother to join our team of elders. Uh, Secondly, another man that you may know uh, is Eugene Lowe. Now, uh, I know he used to pastor here because I used to be a church member here, and Eugene and I would 
uh, meet for coffee as I would meet with Pastor Bobby and I meet occasionally with Pastor Ollie and, and Pastor Arnold. And as you know, they felt called to leave and be a part of this church planting team at Redemption Hill. Um, however, when I look for a quality Singaporean that has exactly the kind of shape that would bless GBC, I couldn't think of anybody else. And so I have um, honestly just uh, pestered him <laughs> and, and challenged him to put down something worthy in order to take up again something worthy. Uh, so next Sunday, Pastor Eugene is going to be preaching here. We're to consider inviting Eugene and Claire to join with us on our elder team. So that means... Following the message, 12 February, we're going to have a family meeting, or I think, uh, what is it called here? Town hall meeting, which sounds political, but so we're going to have a town hall meeting where you can ask Song Huat questions or Andrea, you can ask Andrea questions. Um, is she really serious about Sydney? Any, any kind of questions, you, you can ask these brothers, and, and am I losing control of this? <laughs> And then on, on 26 February, we're going to come again, and we're going to ask you to affirm these two brothers um, called of God to serve in and through GBC. Um, if you have any questions in the meantime, feel free to write me or any of the elders. Um, I want us now to spend a moment watching the video of this brother as he shares the impact of the gospel on his life. In the last one, I've been struck by brokenness. I think uh, there's more brokenness in this world. But I do see the church as a powerful witness and testimony of the power of the good news. Uh, while joy is here, God's kingdom is really here, it's not fully here. So we need to acknowledge that there are brokenness around us. We need to be praying for people who are broken. We need to encourage them, come alongside them. So I think one prayer is that pray that people who are experiencing loss, brokenness, suffering among us, that God's presence will be very real to them, and that as a church, we can come alongside to support them. But yeah, at the same time, I, I also want us to be praying that as a church, as we come together to love one another, that we'll better portray or picture the gospel to others around us. I mean, I've seen people in grace itself where after they come to hear about the gospel, they receive it and it changed their whole life orientation. And there are others who are Christians and as they come to a deeper appreciation of the gospel, they, they have a deeper joy in their life, they are more motivated for ministry. You, you see them wanting and desiring God's word, uh, no more of God's word, desiring to grow in Christ-likeness. So this is where I see the gospel at work. Most people think of the gospel as for non-Christians. Uh, but I think the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that uh, we are now forgiven sinners. I think that news is both for Christians and non-Christians. So uh, I am Oliver. Um, well, currently I'm one of the pastors here in Grace Baptist Church. Well, I, I, I heard about Jesus when I was about 12 years old. I was going to a mission school. And you know how it is for students, 12 years old, during recess break, 
we are either out in the field playing soccer, or in my case, in the canteen eating with the rest of my friends. But there was a group of uh, boys at that time who, during the recess time, they were in the classroom doing Bible study. And that kind of attracted, that kind of made me curious, attracted me to ask the question what they were doing, and they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. So I first heard about the gospel of Jesus when I was about 12. But I think uh, when I really received the gospel was probably in my 20s, uh, because um, some people, they when they hear the story of prodigal son, they identify themselves with the, the runaway, rebellious younger son. I was the self-righteous older brother. So even though I heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I knew that it was a gospel for uh, the lost, the rebellious lost. I didn't realize until my 20s, it was also a gospel for self-righteous older brothers. Um, I thought that, even though I heard the gospel, I always thought that, you know, I'm, I'm not too bad. I, I kind of live a life that is kind of uh, right with, with people, right with God. I thought uh, that uh, I've done nothing wrong. I've done my best in keeping up with the commands of God. But I failed to realize that uh, I can't keep up the God holy standard. I, I didn't realize that uh, I was being self-righteous. So it was only in my 20s. Uh, a low point of my life when I was brought to the point where I realized that no matter what I do, I still far, fall far short of what God requires. I realized that in and of itself, even my pride in that I keep God's rule is a sin. So I realized I was self-righteous. And it was then that I, I repented of my sin, uh, confessed to God uh, of my self-righteousness and received Jesus Christ. What the gospel did for me was the power of God who changed me from the inside out. So my motivations for doing things were very different. I do see uh, the gospel at work in GBC in a number of areas. Because just this very morning, the pastors and elders, we gathered to pray for the church. And we realized that there are, have been people just sharing some of their struggles in their personal life, in their family. And uh, that we, we do see a lot of brokenness. And I see the how the Spirit used the Gospel to work in the lives of uh, people. So it's just a whole change about in orientation. The whole value system has changed. There is almost a re-tuning re of their worldview. Uh, so I, I do see that. As a church, as Christians, how then can the Gospel work deeper in our lives? Uh, I'm supposed to look at the camera now. Whenever okay. you're ready. Hi, my name is Ollie, and I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father God, we thank you that in so many lives all around us, you have powerfully entered and transformed us for your glory. I pray that increasingly, even at this moment, you would find in us men and women who have a passion for your word, that we would live lives not as religious people, not with Baptist distinctives, but that we would live lives openly and joyfully transformed by the power of the gospel. So God, open our hearts to your word now. Discipline our minds that we might focus on you. And may we be changed by our encounter with you and your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I think everyone knows, all year we are teaching a theme called Not Ashamed, a series of messages from the book of Acts, 
And it's on how the gospel naturally leaks out of people when we have been changed by it. It's not that we've been changed by different information than Buddhists have. It is that we have been powerfully transformed by the power of this good news. Now, before we get into the passage, and I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles or open up your media devices to Acts chapter 2. We're looking at a short passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. But before we get started, I'd like to offer you something that actually doesn't uh, come from Scripture. It may not be particularly spiritual. You'll notice that I've named this message, The Body Beautiful, meaning the body of Christ is beautiful or ought to be beautiful. But uh, I don't know if you're aware, but I do this kind of research just so you don't have to. But I was researching about a month ago on the secret uh, to looking uh, better. Uh, Because I'm 59 and I, I don't look better. And I know that you're all interested in this, and this was a scientific study done by Dr. Nicholas Furl, who is a research PhD at the University of Royal Holloway. I even looked it up to make sure it was a real university. He got a grant of 300,000 pounds to research how people looked more attractive. And in a broad study, they got many participants to participate in this study. And it seemed fairly simplistic to me because the, the first thing they did was they showed every participant a photo of a person's face and asked them to judge how attractive they were. And they counted all the scores And then through a process of elimination, they took another face, a person of, how do I say this? Okay, they were really ugly, put it next to the same face and asked those people again to judge how attractive that same person was. In every case, when a person was judged alongside an ugly friend, The participants judged that original person to be far more attractive than they had originally. So science has determined how you and I can look more attractive. Only cost 300,000 pounds. Stand next to an ugly friend and take photo. Now initially, let me show you how this works. Um, There I am, that's it. That's as good as I'm ever going to look. In my Scottish kilt, you can't see it because it's below. It wouldn't help to look further below. But, you know, I'm, I'll acknowledge, I look at that, I'm not as good as I used to be. My, my cheeks have now uh, moved down to my jawline, which is not the greatest look. But, uh, next to my best friend, you, do, you, do you see how much more attractive I am now? Suddenly. I am a, a great-looking guy, which initially when I read this study, I thought, that's, that's brilliant. And, and then I began to feel nervous because a lot of you have been wanting to make friends with me. <laughs> oh, come on, pastor, take photo. I know what you're doing. You're publicly shaming is, is what you're doing on Facebook, right? So now, now I'm telling you this for, for a reason. This is what religion does. Religious people require ugly in order to feel good. In order to feel better about ourselves, we require somebody worse than us 
to stand next to, next slide, and point at. So, so that we can say, um, you know, look at me, not too bad, right? The, the blemish of my judgmental gossiping is not nearly as bad as the ugly wounds of this man's lifestyle choices. Right? My, my, my constant judgmentalism is not as bad as this person's sin. That's what a Pharisee needs. That's why the Pharisee stood with great boldness in the presence of the holy God and said, Lord God, I, I'm so thankful I'm not like that tax collector photo. That's what religion does. And GBC, the world has found us out. We, we have become the poster children for isolation. Well, every Sunday we gathered with the already convinced and we hear a sermon that we are already sure we believe and we celebrate that we are all the same. But that was not the first church. I want us to see the thing that made this first church beautiful was not that they looked good compared to other people. And it's going to be really important as we walk through this passage that we do our best to extract ourselves from our contemporary cultural interpretation of what was happening in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. Uh, this is the beautiful church. And, and for those of you who have a short attention span, I'm going to give you the, the, the big takeaway right now. You, you write that down or find it in your ministry guide, then you can just shut down. Here's the big um, takeaway. The, the body beautiful, the beautiful church, is a church in which Christ is obvious. That's what happens when you export from Macintosh to PC. Um, it looked good in, in, on my computer. Um, we, we need to understand that there was nothing about this group that we're going to see in Acts chapter 2. There, there was nothing about what they were doing. There was, there was nothing about who they were that was um, characteristic of any human culture or consistent with any human behavior. It, it, it was not normal stuff that was happening at that point. The, 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 the church was not even a name. There was no such word in the world as Christian. So, so I, I need you to stick with me. To understand Scripture, it, it is very dangerous to interpret it through the filter of my world and my context and my understanding. We need to understand what those people thought what was happening in, in that time, in that context, in that day. And here's what we can know. The early church was both powerful and powerfully attractive. So... I'm starting from the back, verses 46 through 47. This is the beautiful church described. And by the way, church growth experts obsess over this passage. We expose our idols every day when we obsess over this chapter. Because all of us want to know how to grow our church, right? We hire pastors with the expectation that somehow by their gifting and leadership, what the church will grow. So, so church growth experts 
obsess over this. What is it that makes the church attractive? How do you go from 20 members to new creation? Don't tell me you've never asked yourself that question. How do we get to the church that we are to the crossing? How, how does the church grow? This is our idol. Our idol is the success. We, we would rather go directly to success rather than walk humbly with God. So we obsess over it. There's even a church growth model named after this, uh, this particular passage. It's called the attractional church model. And here's what attractional church members do. They try to create ministry that will attract their friends to come to church. Attractional church members will say things like, our pastor's message is so riveting. He's like a Singaporean John Piper. Well, you could see him live. Or, or our children's ministry is amazing. We have a menu of ministries that would bless your family. Our worship team is top drawer. That's the attractional church model. But you see, this was not who they were. In the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, Acts 2 is actually the first Reformation. It was a Reformation of the Jewish faith. How do we know? Day by day, this is verse 46, attending the temple together. They were not starting a new religion. They were not saying, oh, this is awesome. We're going to start a new religion. We're going to name it after Jesus the Christ. They were amazed that God has revealed his mystery to his people. They, they were day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was a radical reformation of Judaism. They, they didn't say, oh, what are we going to do now that we're Christians? They celebrated the goodness of God. And this is why it's important we understand this passage is descriptive of a people transformed by the gospel. It is not prescriptive. It is descriptive of a people absolutely transformed by the gospel. The first thing I want us to notice is that little phrase, all the people, which is actually only one word in Greek. The next slide. Now, you, you don't... Okay, so Microsoft doesn't know Greek. And, and you don't need to know it either. You just need to know what it means. All of the people, that, that one Greek word translated with, what is that, three English words, actually doesn't just mean all the people in the temple. That means all the foreigners, all the outsiders were drawn into the temple to these people. There was something unusual about these people. Trust me, they had no training in evangelism explosion. Campus Crusade wasn't training them how to do a, you know, canned presentation and, and say to people, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They were just oozing joy. The aroma of Christ was so obvious 
Now, people would gather around them. They, they weren't targeting the already convinced. They weren't serving a better ministry menu than the, than the temple previously. They weren't saying, come and join our outreach program. They were simply modeling lives transformed by the power of the gospel. And that's all we want to say to you. We're not going to teach you seminars on how to be an effective speaker. We are hoping that as we become familiar with God's word and his ways, we too will be transformed by the power of the gospel, not one time, but every day. So second, notice um, what this body beautiful was devoted to. Uh, Verse 42, the beautiful church devoted. It says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, I can imagine you already have an idea in your head because you maybe you grew up in Sunday school. You've been to maybe many Bible studies. You, maybe you've heard this preached, but remember, interpret this according to the way they would have experienced it. There's one thing you need to be aware of. First of all, that word devoted is the Greek word to, to be. In other words, um, it's not that these things were really important to them. It means they existed for them. They lived for this. That's how devoted they were. They existed for four things. And I, I want you to notice, each of these must be modified. Maybe you're like me and you grew up with... a. A King James Bible or, an, or another interpretation, many Bibles do not word for word translate this because every single one has a definite article in front of it, and that ought to change your understanding of what these mean. First, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, in the original language, um, it's the teaching of the apostles. The, the important thing to understand is they were committed to the teaching, not the apostles. They were committed to the message of the gospel, not the messengers. So understand they weren't publishing a ministry guide and people weren't coming and saying, well, I sure hope Peter's not preaching next Sunday because I prefer James. He's very systematic. I understand him, but that Pastor Peter, he's all over the map. You know, he gets crazy and makes these statements, right? Um, It didn't matter to them, the messenger. Because it was not the messenger they were devoted to. It was the content. It was the message that they absolutely existed for. How I long for the day when every single Sunday all of us are like, I just can't wait to feed on God's word. It doesn't matter the character even of the messenger. Because let's be honest, Peter was a mess. It was the content of the message that was powerfully transformational. It's what they existed for. The second thing they existed for, remember the definite article, they existed for the fellowship, not just fellowship. Because I I, I suspect many of us know that Christian word transliterated right out of the Greek, koinonia. Um, So we we tend to interpret it as meaning after church, we're, we're having fellowship, got some tea and cakes Maybe popia downstairs on a really good fellowship day, right? That's not what it's talking about. They were committed to the fellowship, 
And, and that word koinonia in secular Greek does not mean let's hang out, drink, and eat together. It literally means participation. That's a description of someone who has been transformed by the gospel. They lived to participate in the body. There was nobody coming to church saying, so Pastor Peter, my family and I are just kind of praying about how we'll be involved. So, you know, as a, as a pastor, I consistently grieve at, at pastor fellowships when the pastor says, oh, you know what they say, you know, 20% of the body does 80% of the work. Can you imagine if 80% of your body parts didn't do anything? You would be in palliative care. Honestly, you would be in palliative care. And that is exactly why most churches, when they're looking for a pastor, they're hoping for a pastor who will come and give them palliative care. Because most of our parts are not working. The rest are hurting. Come on, pastor. Care for us. We want to exist with the least amount of pain until we pass peacefully into glory. But you see, a description of a people transformed by the power of the gospel were people who existed for participation. They were devoted to participation. They believed God saved them on purpose for a purpose. The only question is, what is my shape? How do I fit into this body? What has he called me to? They lived for that. They existed for that. And then third... For the breaking of bread. Um, now, I understand there's lots of debate about, well, is this a reference to the Lord's Supper? Or, or is this really fellowship? And a lot of pastors, I think they fall on the side of, well, this is probably more about fellowship, except it's to the breaking of bread. And that meant it was an act of daily corporate devotion. It is, yes, it is the source of our kind of perfunctory uh, saying of grace before we eat. But it was not asking Lord to use that food to strengthen them. It wasn't thanking God for food. It was breaking the bread and thanking God for the cross. That's why it's called grace. It's not a salvation that I earned. And these early believers were devoted every time they ate. Remember, this is before the ordinances were a part of the church. There was no church. But so changed were they by the power of the gospel. Every time they ate, they thanked God for his grace and mercy. They were devoted to thanksgiving. And to celebrate in the grace of God. And then fourth, and this you might find the most difficult. They were devoted, I know the NIV says, to prayer. And we assume that's the case because we know that when Jesus came again, all he preached that passage last week, they were all together and they were praying. But remember, this has a definite article. They were devoted to the prayers. Now, what in the world can that mean? Unless you get the fact that they believed they were Jewish people. You you see, this is the grace of God they anticipated. That the nations had come at Pentecost. 
They were celebrating their adoption as children of Abraham. Not into a new religion. But as children of Abraham, there is only one prayer in the Jewish faith that is identified with the definite article, the prayers. Only one. It's called the Amidah, which literally means the standing prayer. It is the very same prayer after which the Islamic Salah is taken from. Prayed three times a day. Must be facing Jerusalem or five times a day facing Mecca. This was a prayer enshrined in the life of every Jewish person. It went back 500 years before Christ during the ministry of Ezra. It's codified in the Jewish Talmud, in the Jewish scriptures. It is the prayer. 19 verses prayed three times a day. It was daily confirmation of the mystery of gospel exposed. And here's how it began. Blessed are you, Lord our God, God of our fathers, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, the exalted God who bestows bountiful kindness, who creates all things, who remembers the faithfulness of our patriarchs, and who in love, listen, brings a redeemer. You are a God who brings a redeemer to their children's children for the sake of your name. Remember us for life, O King who brings life. Inscribe us in your book of life for your sake, O God. O King, you are a helper. You're our Savior and our shield. Blessed are you, O shield of Abraham. You are mighty forever. You are the God who resurrects the dead. You are powerful to save. Daily. These men and women, powerfully transformed by the gospel, stood out and cried the prayer. You are a God who raises the dead. That's why you need, I need the power of Christ. Because no man can convince any man to rise up out of the grave. For your friends who are spiritually dead, you can't convince them to come alive. In order for them to come alive, you need raise the dead power. And for raise the dead power, this transformed people cried out to the God who is life. Who raises the dead. You are, O God, powerful to save. This was the prayer of daily celebration for the outsiders who were made insiders by the power of the gospel. Third, um, the beautiful church empowered. In verse 43 says this, And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, we want to soften this, right, in the 21st century, that word awe. Because in the 21st century, we love to sing, our God is an awesome God. Dude, dude, he's awesome. But 300 years before, when Isaac Watts wrote, he wrote, our God is an awful 
God. You see, it's the same root, awe and awesome, awe and awful. Here's what we need to understand about that word, awe. In the Greek pantheon of gods, Aphrodite was the goddess of love, and Ares was the god of war. And they got together, and the product of that relationship was the god Phobos. Phobos was the god that Alexander the Great prayed to each time he went into battle. His was the face that adorned the shields of the Spartan army. Understand this, those of you who are fans of 300. 300 Spartans defeated the Persian army, not because the Persians were terrified of Spartans. They were terrified that the Spartans might be served by a god of war. So Phobos, from which we get our English word phobia, was not the god of fear. He was the god of the fear of gods. It is this word that is used in this passage. Everyone was full of the fear of an awesome God. It was this word that was used every time humanity intersected with the Almighty. This, this sense of, of fear that I'm the presence in something so much greater. My, my mind cannot comprehend all that He is and all that He is able to do. It is, it is this that Zechariah felt when he was in the Holy of Holies and suddenly the angel of the Lord, Phobos, filled him. Fear that God is in this place. It is the same thing that when the shepherds were watching their sheep by night, Scripture says, and they were terrified. It's that same word. They were filled with awe. Not because these shepherds were afraid of the night. It was because they realized, whoa, God is in this night tonight. It is this same experience the disciples felt when Jesus stood up in a storm and commanded it to lay down. They were filled with phobia. God is here in this boat. And when Jesus healed the paralyzed man in Luke chapter 5, it says, Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with what? Oh, Phobos. This is a God thing happening here. No prophet can bring the dead back to life. No prophet, when he chased demons into pigs. It says the entire region was filled with phobos, meaning God is walking around in our neighborhood. This glorious, almighty God, when the Spirit came to live among His people, phobos came upon every man. Now, I'm willing to bet when you first met me, you weren't going, oof, whoa, right? Because I'm just a man. But, but when we have been 
transformed not by a foreign expert pastor, but by the power of the gospel all around our neighborhood. There will be this sense of awe, this amazing God aroma is oozing out of that building where those people gather. And there's this amazing joy that's not normal for religious people. There's this boldness, this lack of shame. God is doing something. It is that fearful realization that sinks deep into every soul that something is going on that only God could do. It's not because their ministry team is so gifted. It's something that only God can do. And finally, I just want to end with this. Oh, in the five minutes we used to have, I'm going to close with this. Apologies to you guys, DS. Um, the, the beautiful church invested, verses 44 through 45, quickly. And all who believed were together and all, all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, before you start thinking about socialism, I'm not going there. I, I will say this. When, when people are transformed, they stop being owners and they start being stewards. Right now, now, we have an ownership culture, and that's the problem with the gospel. We have become storehouses with the treasure of the gospel instead of stewards. That's the problem with grace and our name. We become recipients of grace, but not stewards. But when you've been powerfully transformed by the gospel, you stop investing in yourself and start investing in the kingdom. Uh, my father's immigrant culture taught him there were only three things you could trust. Here's a group of Scottish immigrants. About 1936, downtown Vancouver. There's three things you can trust. You can trust your own people. You can trust your own culture. And you can trust your own hard work. And that's why 99.9% of all churches in Canada are immigrant churches. Ethnically homogenous. There was no such thing as ethnic church in the first century. That was the miracle. God made 16 nations. I counted 16 people group in the, in the second chapter of Acts that gathered to celebrate Passover. 16 different people groups, 16 nations made one family by the power of the gospel. Everything my father learned, he learned from Scottish culture. Every job he got was from another Scot. I didn't know there was any other people in, in Vancouver besides Scots. My brother's named after the first man, a Scottish man named Hamish McTavish, who gave my dad his first job. My, my dad comforted himself with, with Scottish sayings like, a penny spared is twice got, which this is Scottish Math, it means like if you, if you spend a penny, you'll be a penny down instead of a penny up. That makes two pennies, right? Scottish math. So you, you think Chinese are frugal? Sorry. My father recycled toothpicks. Yeah, that's right. When Sherry first came from California to meet my parents, I said, sweetie, now listen, listen, listen. I don't use the toothpicks because my dad dig, dig, dig. And then he, oh, this is still good. And, and puts it back. 
That's frugality. That's how you provide a future for your children. Don't spend a penny and keep using those toothpicks. And, and, and then he heard the gospel. And, and everything changed for him. Um, th- this is my dad. Next slide. He, he's, he was a short one. Um, completely different. He didn't own a thing the day after he heard the gospel. I, I remember coming back from Malaysia, Sherry and I, missionaries in those days in Malaysia, and I was driving down the highway, which is our house was on what used to be a highway. I see this old guy bent over with a plastic bag picking up cans. It's my dad. And I pulled in the driveway. I, I complained to my mom. I said, I said Mom, Dad's like a, a homeless person. He's out there picking up cans on the side of the road. And Mom was quite proud. She pulled out a local newspaper. It's called the Surrey Leader. It had a photo of this old couple walking down the highway, dragging this black plastic bag. It was my mom and dad. <laughs> they were, you know, picking up cans and bottles. And you go in their basement, you know, underneath the ground floor. And he had these cans stacked high to the ceiling. And once a month, he would bag them up. My, my dad died 13 years ago. And uh, at his funeral, I met people I, I'd never met before. And one of them was an old woman who seemed to be about 150, who took transit all the way from South Surrey Trailer Park to North Vancouver, where his funeral was. And she told me, you know, your dad, uh, when my husband got cancer and couldn't work, I had to do something for income. And so I would walk up the highway and pick up cans and bottles. And one day this man pulled over in his car and said, what are you doing? I said, I've got to earn some income. I've got to pick up bottles. And from that day forward, my father, that's who he was, began to collect cans. And she said to me, you know, you, your, your dad um, every month would bring me these sacks of cans. And, and every month there'd be $100 in it. This is a man who recycled toothpicks. And, and then she said, your, your dad was a beautiful man. Um, He was a beautiful man, but it's not because Scotland produces particularly beautiful men. It's it's not because compared to other people, he was more generous. He was a beautiful man because a beautiful Messiah was obvious in him. And he went from investing in himself in his own future, into investing in others. Now, I just want to close with this because what worries me is what is so popular today is what seems to be to me just a a counterfeit church. And, And the Apostle Paul predicted this when he wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, But understand this, in the last days there will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Trust me, he's not talking about non-believers. 
believers, he's talking about a counterfeit church. How do I know? Because of this, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. This is why gospel transformation matters to me. Because I do not want the Spirit and His Word to say about us, avoid those people. They they have this appearance of godliness, but there is no powerful transformation. They learn the right Sunday school answers. They listen to the right speeches. They, They sing the right songs, but they come in unchanged and they leave unchanged. Have nothing to do with them. Beloved, we don't we don't need another program. We don't need another vision statement or master ministry plan. We need to be men and women who would openly expose our hearts to the power of his spirit, who would fill us and cleanse us. And then, without the program, God will add to his church those he is changing by the power of the gospel. I want to ask you to bow with me just for a moment as we close. I wonder if um, if I'm the only one. Like, I mean, honestly, do you, do you ever sometimes just feel tired of the whole religious thing? Yeah, yeah. Do you ever wake up on Sunday morning and suddenly inexplicably feel, like, exhausted? Feel anxiety about the preparation you have to do, the, the way you've got to look? Making sure you come with the right attitude. The, the, the beautiful church is not the church where the pastor's ministry is obvious. It, it, it's not the church in which our skill sets are front and center. The beautiful church is the church in which Jesus is obvious. We're so saturated by him, he's just oozing out of us. We're we're outsiders, we're like, what's what's different about those people? And are drawn irresistibly by the grace of Christ. I wonder if you would say with your pastor, man, I'm just done with going through the motions. I I want authentic joy. I, I don't want to do everything humanly possible. If his power can do really far more than we can ask or think or even imagine... I wonder if, you know, just, you know, with no one looking around because I'm not taking numbers, but if, if you would say, you know, Pastor, I, I want to return to that reformation.
I want to not only be reformed, but transformed, not, not improved version of what I used to be, but an entirely new creation by the power and mercy of this Hamida God. If, if you would say that, just, just where you are, just slip your hand and, and let me see it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Anyone else, you, you just want Christ to be obvious. Thank you, thank you. I want to pray then this prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God. You are God of our spiritual fathers. You are the great God, the mighty and awesome God. The exalted God who bestows on your people bountiful kindness. You who created all things, who remembers faithfulness. You are the God who in love brought a redeemer and even now brings a redeemer. Remember GBC, O King, for life. You are the one who desires life, who is life. So inscribe our names in the book of life, not because we deserve it, not because there's anything attractive in us, but because you are full of mercy and loving kindness. You, O King, are our helper. You're our Savior and our shield. You are mighty forever. Resurrect the dead in us. For you, O God, are powerful to save. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling. To the one who is able to present you without fault and with great joy. To the only begotten of the Father. Be honor and authority and majesty from this day forevermore. Apologies to our worship team. We went over time. God bless you. Go in peace and spread the sweet aroma of Jesus Christ. In a few moments, we're going to be setting up here for DS. If you're serious about learning how to be an authentic follower of Christ, having your heart shaped by his word, I invite you to stick around. Love on one another. God bless you. You're dismissed.